Hi there. Welcome to our podcast, Paradoxify. I am Ann McFarland, author, screenwriter, and mother of five. I'm here with my co-host and husband, Dr. Tim McFarland. Together, we like to talk about the unexpected. That's right. And specifically, we want to talk with our guest about unexpected stories in STEM and faith. STEM, of course, being an acronym for the words science, technology, engineering, and math. And that's our goal, to deliver the unexpected. Also, in every episode, we will start with a riddle or question, and listeners can try to solve it. We will give them the answer by the end of the episode. Great. Let's get started. This is the second of our three-part series on viruses. Last time we talked about virus history and habits. Today we're going to talk about things we can do to fight off a virus, and we're calling these tactics virus combat. My husband, Dr. Tim McFarland, will be answering questions about this. Tell the listeners a little bit about your background in medicine. Well, Ann, I'm happy to be here, and I've been in private practice as a family practitioner for over 30 years in a small town. The last three years, I've been working in emergency rooms and as a hospital specialist. Okay, so in every show, we start off just with a burning question or a riddle. Do you have one for this episode? A lot of things have returned to the stores. We are able to get milk and eggs, but still no toilet paper, so i got to have more information. <laughs> Okay, back to the toilet paper question. I told you guys last time that uh, there were more than one answer about this problem, so I'll give you another answer later in the show. So can you tell us what we need to do to fight off a virus? What should our combat strategy be? For our viral combat, we have to understand some medical concepts. And the first thing we have to understand, as if our life depended upon it, and it might actually in this case, is called viral dose. Viral dose is the dose of the virus that we're exposed to that leads to our infection or immunity. So why should I, just as an individual, care about viral dose? Well, by limiting your exposure, you can save yourself from infection completely, but more importantly, you may save yourself from a severe infection or even death. Some people almost seem to say, don't test, most of us will get it anyway, why wear a mask, I'll get exposed or I won't, but they don't understand the importance of viral dose during your exposure. Viral dose is the amount of exposure multiplied by time. If someone wants to burn down my house, I hope that person brings only one match and nothing else. I hope he doesn't bring a lighter, a blowtorch, five gallons of lighter fluid. So by taking precautions, you can decide some of your viral dose, and that may be really, really important. Low-dose infections may not make you as sick and may give you immunity, and this may protect you in the future. Some people don't realize that historically, before the invention of true vaccines, doctors would intentionally infect healthy individuals with a set amount of fluid from like a smallpox pustule. The resulting low-dose infection could make a person sick and be unpleasant, but generally they would survive. Their hope was to prevent a worse infection from the disease later. So if you want to throw in the towel and say what will be will be, at least be smart about your viral dose. So what can I do, though, to decrease that? People need to take hold of the idea that they can control the dose of their exposure. People have to live so they avoid or minimize high-dose exposures. So what are high-dose exposures? Large groups, like bars, churches, funerals, weddings. But close proximity can include one-on-one -on -one time with grandma in one room. It's the extent of the time as well as the exposure. The more time you spend in proximity, the more exposure. But you can also use this to your advantage. If you have to have a close interaction, aim for within six feet, only six seconds. 
I hear another phrase, though. It sounds like it's the same, viral load. Is there a difference between the two, viral dose and viral load? Viral load is how concentrated our viruses are or how high our viral counts. Viral load may relate back to how sick you will become or how fast you'll get sick. And a higher viral load may predict our chance of surviving versus dying, how long we might be sick. And it might predict if we will be a super spreader. A super spreader. That sounds bad. What is that? Well, there seems to have been several super spreader people or super spreader events. The Milan Fashion Week in Northern Italy was February 21st, 2020. There were a lot of people there from Europe and particularly from Spain. During that time, there was a soccer game between Spain and Italy with over 100,000 in attendance. Two weeks later, Northern Italy, and then shortly after that, Spain got slammed with COVID-19. A company called Biogen held a conference in Boston February 24th through the 27th, and this led to an outbreak of more than two dozen coronaviruses in multiple states. In fact, of the first 28 COVID cases in Massachusetts, 23 of those 28 people attended that conference. Mardi Gras was in New Orleans on February 25th. Spring break parties were in early March of this year. The end of February, there were two funerals and a parade in Albany, Georgia, and it started a super outbreak. Well, I know that most places they've stopped large gatherings like these. So what can we learn from the history since we aren't repeating those mistakes? Well, super spreader spots or maybe super spreader individuals might still come across our paths. So by realizing that you can decrease your viral dose, you can protect yourself. When I walk into Walmart in small town USA, most people are not wearing a mask. But they need to think about there could be a super outbreak that's going to happen in two weeks. And it was from that Walmart at that moment. We just don't know where. So if the people who got COVID at biotech meeting would have known prior to going to that meeting it was going to be a super spreader, what do you think they would have done differently? First of all, they would not have gone. And I guess if they did go, though, they would have worn a mask and gloves and washed their hands a lot, not talked to a lot of people after the meeting. Now what? How does that help me? Well, since you don't know where the next super outbreak is going to occur, you need to live as if you don't want to be a part of it. Don't go out if you don't have to. Plan your trips to get everything once a week instead of five different trips. Longer time of exposure can potentially make you sicker. Get in, get out. Use curbside pickup or delivery. Wear a mask and gloves when you go in a store. SARS was the corona outbreak of 2002. That infection is five times more deadly than it looks like COVID-19 is going to be. I do remember a little bit about SARS, but I don't remember it killing people like COVID-19. Why is that? Well, SARS infected 8,000 people and it killed almost 800, so that's the 10% death rate. But people had symptoms before they began to shed the virus. So as soon as someone started with a cough and fever, they were tested and isolated. Boom, it's done. So isolation works 100%. Yes. And we're getting unknowingly exposed every time we go where there's public. Yes. I don't want to be part of the next super outbreak. So you mentioned large groups, close proximity. These shorten your times of exposure. What else can I do? You can really decrease your viral dose by wearing a mask and gloves. So when you look at pictures from hotspots, everyone is wearing a mask. And think of it, no one knows the next super outbreak. Is hand washing better than using hand sanitizer? Yes, but doing either often is more important than waiting to be able to wash your hands. Hand sanitizer tends to be much more available. I guess it's especially important after unloading groceries or after helping a family member who might be a potential COVID-19 case. When I go out, though, what's the best way to do this mask and glove thing? It's kind of complicated. 
Yes, and you don't want to accidentally be making yourself more exposed when you're trying to decrease your exposures. You know, it's kind of a long process, but it makes sense if you think about it. Just think of everything that you touch has COVID snot on it, and it's everywhere. So I suggest put a pump hand sanitizer in your car's front cup holding. Leave your phone in your passenger seat of your car. Get out of your car. Put a paper sack empty on your driver's seat. Shut and lock your car. Put on your gloves outside the car. Then put on your mask. Then you can go shop while you're shopping. Do not touch your face. Do not touch the outside of your mask. So like I said, from then on, you have to think of your gloves and the outside of your mask as being covered in COVID. When you return to your car, unlock it and open your trunk. Put your bags in your trunk. Put your shopping cart away. Open your car door. Take one glove off by turning it inside with your gloved hand. With your clean, ungloved hand, open the paper bag. With your gloved, dirty hand, remove your mask and place in the paper bag. With your clean hand, remove your remaining glove and turn it inside out. Place gloves and the paper bag in the trunk of your car and shut the trunk. Some people are just putting them in the parking lot. There's no need to do that. You can take it home and later you can put it in the trash. So you sit in the driver's seat and pump hand sanitizer and wipe your hands and the keys. You close your car door. When you get home, you can put on clean gloves if you have enough. Put your sacks of groceries in the entryway. And unless need or refrigeration, leave those bags alone for four hours and then discard them. After you place the bags in the entryway, undress down to your underwear, place clothes in the washing machine. Do not touch anything till you turn on the hot water in the shower. Shower and dry off. And repeat that in a week if you have to go back out. Gosh, <laughs> that's a lot and a lot of steps. Um, I can put that on our website and I'll give that at the end. But it sounds like it's just basically we need to make a choice. If we want to go through all that and, and minimize our dose and exposure, or we're just going to say, never mind. To me, it's important. I'm in the age category that is vulnerable. Uh, it seems excessive. What do you say? Well, it is. Do the best you can. You have to try and decrease your viral dose. And think about takeout food. Does takeout food give you any exposure? Uh, yeah, there are people that touch it, or the box or the bag, and then I touch it. That's right. So to be honest, you can't do social isolation perfect. You do the best you can. Limit your going outside. Limit bringing anything in from the outside. There's a couple that on March 4th went on a 24-day float down the Grand Canyon. By the end of the trip, no one on the group had heard of COVID-19, and no one had it. But they had to go back to reality. We have to live in reality. But my point is, do as much as you can to decrease your viral load. You won't be perfect, but you have to put in some effort. We all have to work together to stop COVID-19. Yeah, and I'm just going to summarize. So viral load and viral dose, the amount that we have of it, affects perhaps how sick we're going to get. also affects whether we're spreading it to other people. And so there's a lot of reasons to really work on that. One of the things I hate doing is when I go to buy gas, I realize as I touch the numbers of my zip code that I'm basically touching where somebody else also has touched. So I've started using a Kleenex or a bag over my hand. Right. So just think about your exposure. Cell phones, keys credit cards. Wipe them down with a paper towel with a little alcohol. Lay them on paper towels to dry. Go ahead and set up before you leave your house. Have the paper towels and alcohol by the door where you're going to come in. So you can do this as soon as you return. Actually, something I did the other day is I've, I've stopped taking my purse in, my whole purse. I'll put, put my credit card in my pocket or the cash I need, and I just leave my purse locked in the trunk of the car because I realize as I'm toting it around, it's a surface that can be collecting things. That's a great idea. Limit COVID snot. 
And then you mentioned wiping down surfaces with alcohol and allowing them to dry. Why does the flu, we talk about viruses and flu is a virus. Why is it not killing more than it does? We've had vaccines for a number of years and we've had prior infections from the flu or the influenza that's uh, seasonal. And those prior infections and those prior vaccines give some immunity to the next year. The flu runs into a person who's immune to it. That's called a zero spreader. It's sort of like a stop on the train track. So a zero spreader is the opposite of a super spreader. With super spreaders and with the flu and with COVID-19, it spreads from one person to the next. But when the flu hits a person who's immune, it can't go any further. It's the end of the line. If you do this enough, it's called herd immunity. Oh, gosh. I've heard of that. I've actually heard that word, and I never really understood it. So just like a herd, like say a herd of adult elephants circling around the baby elephants if they're being attacked, there's a way to end that spread. I read another article yesterday about this herd immunity perspective. It was coming from an epidemiologist, someone who studies epidemics, and he believes we should just open up society and let the herd immunity take a natural course, which he said that for a respiratory event like COVID, the duration is about two weeks. Spreading out the duration by social distancing is unnecessary, according to him. He said that we should keep the elderly apart from the rest of society and let the kids go back to school and mingle and the non-elderly go back to work and get this whole thing over and done with. What do you think about that? It was discussed on several levels early. The problem is COVID is lethal to too many people, particularly the elderly. And some people are like, you have to sacrifice the elderly for the good of the society. But he even said that he would quarantine the elderly, but so many of the elderly in the United States live in nursing home or uh, senior living. So they have younger employees going in and out and you're exposing them so that they get this disease and they get the immunity, but they're gonna be going in and out of the nursing homes and assisted living. So you're going to just be sacrificing a high percentage of those people. And I don't think society would tolerate that. The other problem is COVID actually makes younger people very ill. While not a lot of them die, some do, but a lot do end up on respirators. I don't think society is ready to sacrifice younger people in particular. Another problem with it is the medical field would be completely overwhelmed for those two weeks. So you would have what happened in nursing homes, what happened in plants that had half their employees go home sick, what happened in the hospitals in New York. You're just saying, we're going to just let that happen in two weeks everywhere and be done with this. I don't think society is ready for that heavy of a toll. Well, can you break that down, that that statement, too heavy a toll? I mean, we kind of understand that, but put it into some numbers so we can really see this picture. All right. I live in a small town. We have 12,000 people, and we have a hospital that has 25 beds, and we have six respirators. If we do the method that we're doing now to flatten the curve instead of going for two weeks of just everybody gets sick, it makes a tremendous difference. If you do what we're doing now, we may have six, 12 deaths in our community. But if you take 12,000 people and you let half of them get infected at one time, that's 6,000. If 20% of those people need to be admitted, you're talking about 120 people to be admitted to the hospital that only has 25 beds. And out of that 120, 100 of them will need a respirator. You only have six respirators. So all of a sudden you're going to have these 20-year-olds that just need a respirator for one week to survive. 
will now not have a respirator and will we'll die. So the numbers become dramatically overbalanced towards an increased death rate if you overwhelm the medical community. Others have looked at it from an economic model and realized that you actually don't economically save the economy or the society very well because there's so much fallout from having so many ill people all at the same time that actually the economy recovers slowly. So herd immunity is something that's really important. And it's why I said earlier that in two years, one, there'll be a vaccine for a year and you'll have more slowly increasing herd immunity for two years that in two, three years from now, COVID-19 won't be a very significant problem unless it mutates aggressively. That's interesting. Herd immunity is a great thing. I mean, we started this segment on herd immunity talking about the flu vaccine, and it's a process, and there really isn't a rapid solution. So we're kind of back to the idea that we believe we need to do more screening tests. Yes, we decided to lengthen and flatten our curves so that we don't have such an overwhelming problem with death rate and hospital overuse beyond its abilities. We're showing that we are doing that, but then after May 15th, there's no more deaths from COVID. According to the models, the problem is if you're not able to divide society into three parts and you just start letting everyone back into society at the same time, I'm afraid that those spikes in death are going to start all over again with another wave. I feel like we really need to divide society into three parts at the end of this. One part is immune to it and we need a blood test to see if you have immunity. The other part is tested and found to still be contagious. They need to still quarantine. And then the third part of society is tested and is found to be negative. They need to still wear masks and take care of themselves, but they're not contagious and they can enter society. Screening tests tell us what part of society has COVID. We also need the availability of the other kind of tests, the, the ones that show us who already has had COVID and they have immunity. Um, neither of those scenarios are in place in terms of abundant availability. So we're back to the basics. Right. So I have to wear my mask and home quarantine as best I can for me, but I have to do it for you and others. That herd immunity or herd participation is how communities can hope not to become the next super outbreak community. That sounds reasonable or makes sense. And, and you know, I I've thought too, because I get fearful about it because we were talking about this big bad virus, but I realize virus itself does not have legs. It's not like it's or arms. It's not like it's able to be mobile unless we move it. Um, We're the spreaders. Our title, which we've called is virus combat. And this sounds like this is something we really need to uh, use the word go to war against. Uh, we have to think about these tactics. And, and you've given us some ideas and some ammunition and weapons for the war. Are there any other topics you can bring us to that we can wrap up this combat idea? Yeah, there's some great videos about making your own mask. Using a cloth mask will give you a good layer of protection, even if it's not perfect. Yeah, and I've also heard on these cloth masks that obviously you can reuse them, but you need to wash them and dry them. I think there were some other things you wanted to talk about. Sure. Anything and everything that you think about possibly helping during a bad flu season needs to be used now. You need to stay rested. You need to eat healthy. You need to drink lots of liquids. You need to exercise. Do everything so that you might not get sick or you might not get as sick. A lot of people don't realize that if you're intubated, you're medically sedated. You may not move much for two weeks during that time. You've probably noticed you see family members so happy to have their loved one back at home from being so sick, and their loved ones were intubated, but they survived. When you look at those people, the family's all happy, but most of the time, the recovered patient looks terrible. you got to realize they haven't walked for two to three weeks. 
Hospitals are too full in the hotspot areas to rehab a person, and so they send you home. So I'll keep coming back to this. You have to maintain social distance and do the things you can. Basically, what we've been hearing is six feet from someone else or less than 10 in a group. Yes, those are starting points, but it's more than that. We've talked about some of this in our last podcast, but if you're with eight people five times a day, and all those people are repeatedly with other people, then the idea that you're quarantining breaks down to be just nonsensical. Well, is there anything else? You know, it's funny. I was doing a college paper years ago, and my nanny, my grandma, was alive, and I asked her, what are some of those old wives' tales, you know, Granny? And she said, I don't know any. And I said, oh, you do? You know, like honey and lemon for cough syrup. Oh, those weren't old wives' tales. She felt like they worked, and there are some people who feel much better using honey and lemon as a cough syrup. It coat, and it feels better, and it helps them. I don't see any point in saying, oh, this hasn't been proven or that hasn't been proven. You know, you want to be reasonable and not do things that can hurt you, but I don't see any problem with taking extra vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, magnesium. You know, if you have a sore throat, consider gargling with hot water. Gargle with Listerine. You know, we wipe down surfaces with alcohol. Well, you can't wipe down surfaces in your throat with alcohol, but you can gargle. If you have fever, take Tylenol and uh, monitor your temperature. There's some thought that maybe you should not use Motrin. Motrin and that whole family called non-steroidals includes aspirin, Motrin, ibuprofen, bufferin, ascriptin. They are an anti-inflammatory whereas Tylenol just lowers temperature and helps with pain, but not as an anti-inflammatory. Inflammatory process seems to be part of how your body fights COVID or how it reacts to COVID, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. So I still am recommending Tylenol probably above non-steroidals. And there's some other things, for instance, mucinex. Now I've heard coughing. We've been hearing that one of the symptoms of COVID, and of course it's a symptom of other viruses we might get, is a cough. What is the cough mechanism in general in the body? It can occur for two different reasons. If you have phlegm or something in your throat or airway, you want to cough, you want to clear that and that's good. Sometimes you just have some swelling in the airway from the infection, and it gives you a sensation that you need to cough because your body can't quite figure out if it's the airway lining or if it's mucus in the airway. So sometimes you just get a dry, hacking, irritating cough. So things that help with coughs to your benefit is to make sure that if there's phlegm or mucus, to keep it moist. Drinking lots of water, I mentioned earlier. You can try steam, drinking warm liquids. You can use a vaporizer or hot shower. Whatever makes it feel like you're helping moisturize your airways and the phlegm and your airways can be helpful. Positioning, moving your position, there's talking about proning is a word. Prone is to be face down. Most of the time people are on a ventilator, they're not moving and they're on their back. When you think of patients who have cystic fibrosis, we know that they need compression, they have vests that will vibrate, they'll do it in different positions and you're just trying to move that phlegm and infection around so that you can cough it out and it will help you feel better and may help you heal. Okay, these are really interesting things. But when should we seek testing and and further help? Sure. So COVID-19 is a viral infection. As with any cold or other flu, it can vary from time to time to one person to the next. But most patients with COVID-19 will have a fever and a cough, and that's the classic symptoms that generally indicate you need a COVID test. 
But as with other viral infections, and what we can tell from COVID-19 is that some people will have more problems with fever, but not much cough or vice versa. Some patients, particularly in the beginning of their COVID-19 symptoms, will have nausea and or vomiting or diarrhea. Some will have mostly muscle aches, like you would think of with the flu. There's some people who are having complaints when they get COVID-19 that make us think that there's some inflammation of the brain or its linings, such as a lack of smell or odd smells, a lack of taste. Some people are even describing things like strange sensations or even hallucinations. Some viruses can invade the heart muscle, and COVID-19 seems to be able to do this. Early studies are showing that some lab work indicating damage to a heart muscle may indicate a poor prognosis, signs that your virus is overwhelming your body tissues. Okay, so back to that idea, though, when do we go to the hospital? When do we try to get more help? Well, hospital setting is most helpful for signs of severe infection. If you're becoming short of breath so that you get winded just walking from your bed to your bathroom, if you're becoming severely dehydrated, if you're having profound weakness, you may want to call ahead to an emergency room or your doctor's office and see if you can get tested for the flu or for strep throat and covid curiosity about wondering if your mild symptoms indicate you've got COVID-19 should prompt you to consider testing. But testing for that type of curiosity is, one, not as available yet as it ought to be. And also, it should be done away from a doctor's office or an emergency room. It's the worst place for you if you're just curious about maybe you have a little cough and a low-grade fever. And it's the worst place for other people in the waiting rooms. Okay, so maybe, though, we've gone uh, past all that and been tested and someone in the household has been identified as COVID positive. What's going to happen then once that's done? You want to, as best you can, try to get the other members tested. But the first thing you really need to start working on is isolating the sick person. It'd be nice if they could have their own bedroom, their own bathroom, and their own hallway, sort of a suite of their own. And it would be important to try to have just one person be the main caregiver. Both the sick person and the caregiver should wear masks and practice good hygiene. And, of course, you want to do the things that we know, clean surfaces often. Everyone in the home should start strict home quarantine. It's socially inappropriate to have a household that has known COVID-19 positive patient and have someone in that house going out to work or going out of the house to do the shopping. You'll need to ask neighbors or friends to run errands and buy groceries. To be honest, they should leave the deliveries outside and not really interact with the household members. COVID-19 infections seem to mostly be resolved in 14 days with at least three days of no symptoms and no fever. And then if COVID testing is available, the idea would be have two COVID-19 tests done 24 hours apart that are negative to say this person is definitely clear of the infection. Now my question to you, Ann. So my local stores have milk and eggs and almost everything, <laughs> but maybe not hand sanitizer, rubbing alcohol, and that seems reasonable, but why is there still no toilet paper? So last time we said that the, one of the answers is there's a panic buying going on, sort of a psychological need to control something that's out of control, like a pandemic. But today I have found some other answers. One of the answers is that in short, the toilet paper industry is the manufacturing and the production and distribution is actually two separate markets, the commercial market and the consumer market. And because of the pandemic, the lion's share of the demand is coming from the home consumer. Some people estimate maybe 40% more toilet paper because we're all staying at home. We're not using the restrooms at the workplace and the schools at the restaurants, hotels, and airports. So that's a huge leap in demand with a supply chain that depends on a predictable demand. Toilet paper is running short on the consumer end and the commercial end. All that toilet paper is sitting stacked up in office buildings, college campuses, Starbucks, and that toilet paper is going unused.
used. So why can't we just send that toilet paper to the grocery store? Completely separate. The chain of distribution, even the same company may be making it in two separate mills. Uh, they have things set up with truck routes, the supplies, the, the format of the toilet paper is completely different. It's very bulky. Obviously, the commercial ones don't fit on our home toilet paper roll holders in the bathroom. It's two different markets, and one market has an influx and the other is running low, and, and switching that whole process is, is complicated. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, maybe I should go knock on the hotel door and say, hey, you got a big roll of toilet paper sitting around? I could use it. And actually, that's where, I don't know if anybody's experienced this, but when you've gone to pick up takeout, perhaps at Chick-fil-A or somewhere, sometimes they'll offer, and do you need any toilet paper? And they're actually, what they're doing is they're saying, hey, we've got extra, and we want to offer this to our customers, so you can add that to your takeout order. So we've come to the end of our podcast and we have something we'd like to do and we want to ask our guests about their faith perspective. I answered the faith questions last time, so Anne, I'm going to ask you. You said in our last episode, faith itself is a paradox. It's something that can't be seen, maybe the same way as viruses can't be seen by the average person. But viruses are very real, and so can faith be. It's very real to those who practice the faith. So I'd like to ask you, are you a person of faith? Yes, I am. I'm a Christian. To me, that means I'm a person who believes in God, and he has the triune nature, the God, the Father, the Son, and Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. He's one God to me, but he presents himself in three different ways. I used to teach kids, it's kind of like an egg, has three distinct parts. There's a shell, white, and yolk, but it's just an egg, and this is one God. I specifically believe he provided and sent Jesus to pay my penalty for sin, and my belief requires that I accept that and that he is real in my life. So what do you find satisfying about your faith? I think the most satisfying thing is that I'm never alone. No matter what circumstance I face, I have access to the powerful God of the universe. I can pray to him. He helps me and comforts me. Also, there's nothing that separates me from his love. And then the opposite side of that coin, what do you sometimes find unsatisfying about your faith? Well, this is hard, and I hate to admit it, but I struggle at times to believe and trust God. I have trust issues. Here's the amazing thing with that. I have a big imagination, too, and I sometimes think, well, okay, what, what is this really real? Is this world without God? Um, I start to try to imagine that and think about that. There's so much things that are evil in this world, and, and this stops me. I know that sounds odd, but the existence of great evil itself is speaking to me of something that it's fighting against. So what is the against? In my Bible, it says it's a powerful, righteous God. Every time I doubt, I remember this. When I struggle with doubt, I found it is impossible for me to imagine a world without God. I can think about both kinds of worlds. There's a world with God and without, and I can't imagine that. It makes more sense and fits the shape of the world when I accept the faith view that centers on him. Think about it. After centuries of human thought and craft, if we were just all that there was, we still can't make one thing in the natural universe, like a flower or bird. And so that too, it's like if we're this intelligent and we're that's it we are it then what do we do about all these things that exist in the natural world so those two things in specific there's three things but those two the natural world and the crazy but lesser force it's still a great force of evil but I realize there's something bigger than but the third and most important faith proof to me and helps me when I doubt are the personal times God has shown up for me and again it's not visible that's faith faith is a paradox but he's shown up when I've called out to him he protects me not he doesn't keep me from every harm that is out there but he's come 
comforted me. He helps me when I ask for help, for wisdom. And those are the things that jumpstart my faith all over again when I hit a low point and I'm doubting. And they prove to me that God is real and he can be trusted over and over. And in the end, that's it. It's faith is faith. It's a step toward the unseen. We do it all the time with lots of things. We don't really think about it. And we should do it with God. It's not that hard to do it with God. Very good, Anne. Thank you for that answer. And so what's an early memory you have of practicing your faith? Very, very young, um, probably five or six years old. I actually can't think back to a time when I didn't know of the presence of God. And one of the memories very early is sitting in a church looking at the colored glass windows and praying for God to hear me. I was sad and afraid. I've always struggled with a lot of fears. My family was having some terrible troubles. I remember being told at a young age that God was very powerful and I needed an ally. I remember whispering the name Jesus in dark days and nights and feeling the sense of his comfort and protecting hand. And there are a lot of specific memories and events. But today, I, I just want to sum it up. He is real. He is. He hears. He cares. He is able. He loves. Um, if you are apart from him, you can be reconciled back to him. Just ask. And that's what I've done is I've called out to him and he listens. You can start your legacy of faith. Don't wait a minute more. Evil is all around us. And evil would love to keep us in the dark about God. But God is just as near and far more powerful and waiting for us to make a choice. And here's a verse that I really love, one of my favorite verses, because I do struggle, like I said, with fears and anxieties. And I have a lot of verses, but this particular one. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans eight thirty eight to 39. Well, thanks, guys, for listening. Thanks for joining us. Check out our website at paradoxify.com. That's P-A-R-A-D-O-X-I-F-I, paradoxify.com.